Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the dough, where cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. This is In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great holiday and New Year. And more importantly, a great year ahead. We have a great year planned for you on In the Bubble. Some amazing episodes kicking off Wednesday with Congressman Jamie Raskin from the January 6th Committee Commission. I don't know what they call it, but it's coming to a close. There's a new Congress coming in. Great conversation with Jamie to kick off the year. And in the meantime, today... I've got a show hosted by Jody Avergan, who is a guy who was formerly on 538. He's got a show called This Day in Esoteric Political History. I think I was on it once before. Uh, he's a really interesting person. He also ha- ha- works with uh, two historians, Nicole Hemmer and Kelly Carter-Jackson. Here's the premise. The podcast tells the story of a moment from history and what lessons it can teach us for today. Some of them are quite funny some of them are super interesting. I picked out one today that I thought was super interesting because it is about the report that the GOP wrote in 2012. Uh, they informally called it the autopsy, but I think it had a like a name like the Growth and Opportunity Report. They talked about how they wanted to modernize the party and to, quote, learn to appeal to more people. Um, and then they elected Donald Trump. And then we elected Donald Trump. So, Hope you enjoy this. I think you will enjoy this podcast if you hadn't listened to it before. You can find it. And more importantly, after this on Wednesday, we're going to kick off the year and have a great one. Thank you. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, we look back at 2012, when in the wake of an underwhelming election, the Republican Party took a hard look in the mirror and said, does America like us? So here in 2022, there was a midterm election in this country, right? And like all midterm elections, a million storylines and spin have blossomed. But certainly one of the main ones is that the GOP underperformed, especially given the historical forces of how a party not in power does in these midterms, something that we've talked about before. So... Look, we've been wanting to do this episode for a while, and now it feels very resonant. So this is our time to revisit what came to be known as the GOP Growth and Opportunity Project Report, a playbook for how Republicans could win elections going forward by being more inclusive and respectful 
a playbook, of course, which Donald Trump casually slid into the paper shredder just a couple <laughs> years later. But a very interesting moment, nevertheless. And I wonder if people are starting to think about that moment now. So here to discuss, as always, are Nicole Hammer of Vanderbilt and Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. Um, so, yeah, we've been wanting to do this for a while. And then all of a sudden this sort of like news hook or historical resonance comes along uh the growth and opportunity project gop ha 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 very well done um but (laughs) i want to actually read a few things that i've seen in the news just in the days since this year's midterm which obviously like underwhelming i think everyone would say for for the gop and some of the quotes that you see floating around are like from gop uh, operatives saying stuff like, you know, America told us that they prefer team normal instead of team crazy in this election. And the people who won, you know, I read a quote from someone who said the people who won had, quote, a proven ability to manage and find solutions to the problems that their constituents were facing. And in the time, someone was quoted as saying this is going to require, quote, a really deep introspection and a look in the mirror. So, Nikki, I wonder... Yeah. Looking back at 2012, in the wake of that election, which Mitt Romney lost, Barack Obama won, Democrats did pretty well, uh, Republicans underperformed. Were those same kind of quotes floating around in in those days? (laughs) Well, they absolutely were. And for the same reasons, there was a sense in 2012, even though Mitt Romney was a very uh, team normal kind of person, maybe even more team normie, just a very straight laced Bella, um, that there were these candidates like Todd Aiken in Missouri, Richard Murdoch in um, in Indiana, who had made these wild comments about things like abortion and rape that cost them those seats. And both of those candidates had won the nomination over more standard candidates who would likely have won re-election in those seats. And so there was this sense that there was too much capitulating to the base of the party and not enough focus on reaching out and broadening the base of the support of the party. And that's an interesting and important analysis. It is accurate that the base of the Republican Party has shrunk a lot in recent years. Um, But in 2012, they have the same problem they have in 2022, which is that is an incompatible strategy with their base. And so when it comes to the primaries, it's still team crazy that's coming away with the nomination. How does this like actually come together? It's, you know, end of November. Yep. Uh, the sting of the election is still pretty raw. Like what is how does this report actually get written? So it's actually written by a couple of uh, political operatives and party leaders, people like um, Haley Barber, Ari Fleischer, Sally Bradshaw. They come together in order to begin to assess where the party is. So they conduct all of these online surveys, 3,000 group listening sessions, 800 conference calls, 50 focus groups. They really are comprehensive and trying to get feedback on what the party is doing wrong. And they compile all of what they learned into this 100-page report that they release in, uh, in early 2013. Yeah. It, it makes you think, like, I know Twitter was around in 2012, but now it's just like the circular firing squad when something doesn't go your way, especially through social media, is so fast that the idea of like slowing down and doing focus groups, I'm almost like, it feels so quaint and, and grown up. <laughs> Doesn't it though? <laughs> to me, this is, it's so interesting about the inclusion aspect because I think that the the Democratic Party has, has definitely become a party of like people of color 
And I remember it's either 2012, maybe it was 20. 16 where it was like they showed the new incoming classes of like the the mm-hmm. republican and democratic parties and the democratic party looked like the u.n it was like full of women <laughs> full of diversity and then you saw like the gop incoming class and you're like oh my gosh it's like two women and all white men it was it was stark it was stark and yeah. i think that that's you know the optics they matter. And so the fact that people don't feel like the GOP has been very inclusive to minorities is something that is continually going to get them as the country becomes more and more diverse. Well, you're hinting at some of the the, the recommendations in this Growth and Opportunity Project. Um, it occurs to me that this was probably the last time that the GOP really had a real conversation about quote unquote identity politics. Mm-hmm. They've had, I would say, a conversation about white identity for a number of years now. Um, but like in the you know, but it is striking that they are very willing here to talk about exactly what you're getting at, Kelly. Both in terms of what does our candidate slate look like, but I think moreover even kind of who are the who are our voters, who is being turned off by us. Let's start there. There's a lot in this GOP mm-hmm. uh, growth and opportunity report, but let's get into the sort of identity outreach stuff. Um, what were the recommendations or what was the the reckoning? So the idea was that the party was relying on white male voters, and that was a shrinking proportion of the electorate. And so they needed to reach out to women voters, to black voters, to Latino voters. And they come up with a set of recommendations under each of those identities for how they're going to reach out. And what's notable, with one exception, which I'll come back to, is that it's almost entirely about rhetoric. It's about how can we phrase things differently so Mm -hmm. that we are not alienating these voters so that they feel included. Like we're not changing our policy on abortion and we're not changing our policy on like uh, the criminal justice system, um, but we will change our rhetoric um, in a way that sounds more inclusive. Now, the one exception on policy was immigration reform. This idea that if they could just hold their noses and pass immigration reform, that they would get over this massive barrier with Latino voters, and that would open the floodgates for um, Latino voters who they considered to be sort of natively conservative, um, would come home to the Republican Party once they were outside of those kind of immigration policy politics. Hmm. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. 
We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on the Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. It's so interesting, this tension between policy and rhetoric that's sort of being teased out here. Because at some point, you know, I want to get I want to talk about all the ways in which this document is hopelessly kind of naive and clearly dated. wasn't follow, wasn't undated, right? But yeah. <laughs> there is a little kernel of truth in the what you just the picture you just painted, Nikki, in that I do think that like the last few years have pointed out how much rhetoric, yes. uh, packaging, you know, vibes for lack of a better word to use the like <laughs> word du jour really do matter, right? But there is a hint in here, as cynical as it is, right? We don't have to deal with policy. All we have to do is packaging. Um, mm-hmm. There is a hint in here about how people really make their decisions, which is just kind of like, do I, am I, what team am I on? Team normal or team crazy, you know? <laughs> and all those things. And so I don't or, know. Or I mean, I think also the, you could be, I kind of wish uh, we had Leah, right, Rigor on for this, mm-hmm. she talks all about black Republicans. But I think there was a time in which you could be a black Republican and you might be somewhat of an outlier in your community. But, you know, nobody just completely um, disregarded you or, or they could understand why you might choose to think in a particular way. But now, if you're a black person and you're siding with the Republican Party, people are like, wow you really hate yourself, you know, like, because there's this idea that the party is so hardcore um, racist that it's really hard to to piecemeal that away for a lot of reasons. And so um, even when you have, you know, I think about like Warnock and, you know, Herschel, like that whole race is just like, it's mind blowing just to see how many things are being disregarded purely because of um, what it means to have a win all um, tactic. Yeah. Right. And also con- kind of some wild statements being evoked about that race that um, race is not a, a factor because it's both black men. And it's like, well, yeah. And it's like, yeah. um, <laughs> um, but I do think that this like focus on rhetoric over policy is actually really important on another level, too, because there was a strategy to try to recruit more women candidates, more black mm-hmm. candidates, more Latino candidates, um, more Indian American candidates. Younger there there candidates. really was an effort at this. Um, but the money was seldom there. They seldom yeah. invested in those candidates. And so um, even though you had many, many more candidates of color and many, many more women candidates, they haven't traditionally won a ton. And in fact, if you look like at the the races in Virginia uh, in the midterms, you had tons of women and candidates of color who were running for Republicans and they almost all lost. A couple things, that, other things that are in this report, and then we'll circle back to some of this identity stuff or rhetoric stuff. But this report I, rightly identifies that I think, you know, at the gubernatorial level, a lot of Republicans did pretty well that year. Right. And so it's really honing in on that paint picture you painted, which we've done episodes on the 2010 Tea Party stuff, Christine O'Donnell, for instance. But, you know, I think what was it, by that point a sense of like, gosh, we've had two cycles where through the primaries, you know, people from Team Crazy have snuck through and it's really hurt us. Where are their pockets of hope? And part of the pockets of hope were at the gubernatorial level. And, you know, in some of the kind of framing of this report that you see people really point out that, like, there's a gubernatorial wing of the GOP that is successful and knows how to govern and um, people are attracted to that. And, like, that's what people look for in politicians. And frankly, that was borne out again this year. Um 
often for Democrats, right? Like Gretchen Whitmer, mm-hmm. right, um, was able to just sort of do well because like all of her ads were about like I fixed that pothole, right? Um, <laughs> and so, so I think that that was one of the lessons that was learned here, and I think was an important one for the GOP. But you know, saying. We should have more governors. Like, when was the last time you saw a governor on Fox News, right? That's mm. the thing. The governors aren't the ones who are out there as the defining face of the party, right? It's these other no, folks. No, certainly not Charlie is... Baker. <laughs> I think about it in Massachusetts, you're not going to see Charlie Baker on Fox but Nikki, News or something I mean, like that. I mean, how much is that? Is it kind of like, who is, who's the voice of our party is what really is going on underneath all of this? Mm-hmm. That's right. And when it came to the focus on governors, the idea was you needed to have somebody who had bipartisan appeal. And there were a number of popular moderate Republican governors who had very high approval ratings in their states, but also they were actually governing. And this was something that had gotten people really frustrated was this idea that Congress wasn't doing anything. Little did they know it would do even less in the years that followed. But I I, have to offer the one corrective on the governor front, which is Governor Ron DeSantis, um, who came out of the 2022 elections just like a behemoth astride the country as one of the few victors that night. Um, But interestingly, it's not necessarily running on this idea that he governs well. It's that he does culture wars at the state level really, really well. Um, So he's, he's finding a way to blend that kind of team crazy and team normal in the governor's mansion. Um, but otherwise, I mean, in the in the autopsy itself, the idea of differentiating um, with governors was really important because obstruction had become so important um, as the key thing that Republicans in Congress were doing. Yeah, yeah. One really kind of just funny thing about this report is that you, there's language in here. Funny is not the right word, but the you know, sort of notable thing about the report that I've always thought about is like there's language in here about how oh, we do focus groups and we find that the party is viewed as scary and narrow-minded and that young people uh, see us as totally intolerant. And, you know, I think that that's, that's like, there's that fair. assessment, right? But it's, well, and maybe fair. fair. But it's coming off of a year in which this party ran, as you were saying, they ran the most, like, boring, like, middle-of-the-road uh, family white man bread. guy, white bread guy. And so, like... Mm. They're talking as if we ran Donald Trump before they actually ran yeah. Donald Trump, um, yeah. and so I don't know what we—I don't know what we make of that. Um, mm. I have one take about what I make of that, but I'm curious what the two of you make of that. Well, there's a little bit of a sense that Romney was being captured by those forces. Um, you know, he goes and he flies to Las Vegas and shakes hands with Donald Trump during the 2012 election, um, but also that they weren't—they were concerned about what was happening at. The national level, but they could understand that an incumbent president and Barack Obama would beat Mitt yeah. Romney. But the the rot was deeper in the party, and they felt like they had just blown the opportunity to win the Senate two cycles in a row, and it was really annoying everyone. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know, I don't know. I also think that there was something about certainly in the year that uh, in two thousand eight when Barack Obama first won, these having this sort of inspirational candidate that everybody could feel good about supporting because it was new or he was black or he was all of these different things. It, it was really hard to do that in 2012. Like Mitt Romney doesn't have that sort of um, overall cultural popularity appeal. You know, there was nothing exciting about voting yeah. for him. I think for young people in particular, it was kind of like, this is more of the same. And I think there's a lot of um, distrust in being able to be convinced by that kind of model. 
And I would throw in one other thing, which is uh, I think we now forget that one of the big framing issues in the 2012 election was this idea of the war against women. And it was Rush Limbaugh calling Sandra mm-hmm. Fluck a slut on national radio. It was the cases that I mentioned earlier, uh, the statements about rape and abortion. But there was also Mitt Romney and his binders full of women and the fact that the ticket oh, yeah. was two white men. So there was this kind of thing that even though Mitt Romney was somebody who seemed very gentle in a lot of ways, um, that he wasn't able able to escape this kind of culture wars vortex or anti-woman vortex that was surrounding the party um, that everyone was kind of drawn into. Hey, listeners, if you haven't heard, you can now show your support for In the Bubble and meet other cool In the Bubble listeners with your very own In the Bubble t-shirt, mug, and baseball cap. Get all three, head to our merch store, at lemonademedia.com slash shop to pick up yours today. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. I wonder, and I know, Nikki, you can answer this question, like the sort of response to the report by people like Rush Limbaugh, who are kind of like, oh, this means nothing or, you know, like this is garbage. And that that response really, I think, takes root more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, had other officials said, no, this is the direction we're going. Like, how much are our sort of non-political people pushing the agenda more than the politicians themselves? I think it's a really important question. And conservative media, particularly conservative talk radio, pretty strongly rejected this report. Now, there were exceptions. So a place like Fox News, I mean, Rupert Murdoch believed that the party had to change. And he was one of the big forces behind the push for immigration reform in 2013, which is one of these recommendations. So it wasn't true across the board that there was like this wholesale rejection of it. But that combination of people like Limbaugh coming out and saying, no, 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 we're, we're not following you into mm-hmm. this kind of milk toast conservatism where we compromise and we're pragmatic. That's not what the people want. And then the sort of immediate defeat of immigration reform made clear well before Donald Trump um, runs for office that the party just it wasn't going along with the the autopsy. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny going into this episode. I think I kind of had a jaded view of this and was like, this is like a party that just lost to a once in a generation, you know, once in many generations presidential candidate. Uh, like, maybe this is just overthinking it and they're two in their own heads. But now I'm kind of like, oh, this was the canary in the coal mine, you know? And I really mm. do think, like, there were some things here where they were pointing out, not just from, like, a policy or a kind of moral standpoint, but from a st- structural standpoint, too. Like, and so you read some of the analysis of this and, like, The Atlantic, for instance, when this report comes out, um, says, you know, 
The Atlantic says the gubernatorial wing of the party is in, o- is in okay shape. It is the federal wing of the party, meaning Congress um, and, and the presidency, uh, that is increasingly marginalizing itself. And unless changes are made, it will be increasingly difficult for Republicans to win another presidential election in the near future. And that's actually accurate, right? Like Donald mm-hmm. Trump won in the hardest way possible, right? And people need to remember mm-hmm. that. Like as yeah. much as it means something, it also was like the flukiest thing in the world and then lost again. And, you know, now they're in trouble again. And so I do think like there are some real, there's some real identification of the seeds um, that were planted here and the trouble that the GOP was in. place where I kind of get a little cynical here and it's you hear the same rhetoric coming up now in the wake of what happened this year is, you know, this idea of like, well, it was candidate quality, right? If we just had good Mm. candidates, we would have gotten through. Or Mm. in this case, you know, there's a recommendation of like, we need to communicate with people who don't agree with us and we need to become more ideologically open and we need to be honest. And so it's like, but that's not who you are. And those (laughs) candidates who got through, no one did that to you. That was you. Yeah. That's who you are, right? Like every indication of who you are is, is shows what kind of party you are. And so I think there's this kind of like, there's yeah. this vibe of like, what we should be more like Democrats. There's an idea. There's a novel idea. <laughs> we should be not what we are. And it's like, well, you're either what you are or what, not what you are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens because in some ways, Donald Trump, even though he completely rejected all of the components of the Growth and Opportunity Project, he did the thing that they wanted, which was to grow the base of the party. Um, Mm -hmm. He got many more voters to come out. It's just that he found kind of both the hidden white voters and then um, a small number of black male and Latino male voters who voted for him um, in part because of gender politics um, and in part because of particular appeals and get out the vote efforts and the use of counter-majoritarian institutions like the Electoral College. So he did the thing. It's not clear that it could be repeated, but it just the party doubled down on what it was. Um, And now the question is, can you keep doubling down on what it is? Uh, Because you may run out of voters pretty quickly, which is the same problem that the autopsy was trying to solve. Because what it is, is not sustainable. It's not sustainable, perhaps for a very presentist moment. But going forward, again, as the country becomes more and more diverse, and there's a strong desire to see more and more women and marginalized people occupy these spaces. I don't know how you sustain that. Right. And it's called the growth and opportunity project, not the (laughs) let's win the next cycle project, right? It is supposed (laughs) to be sustainable. It is supposed to be forward looking. It is supposed to build a big tent, you know, as as they used to say. Um, Mm. And, you know, I still think like the GOP, I mean, this is a, you know, both structurally divided country but also just it is genuinely you know a divided country and the GOP still has plenty of opportunity out there um and I think you know they just keep getting in their own way as we saw this election mm. and you know I was one of the people yeah. who thought the GOP would would do a little better than they did um this election because of the sort of underlying forces and again they got I thought they everyone, got in their everyone own thought that yeah. you weren't alone. <laughs> and that and that was really the you know I think people sometimes forget but that was really how a lot of Republicans felt coming out of 2012 and to circle back to why this kind of was such a big moment in this report. And it felt like one of these, Hey, let's look in the mirror moments. Um, it was obviously at the losing two congressional cycles, but also, you know, I think a lot of Republicans really felt like in 2008, 
they weren't going to win. But by 2012, they thought that Mitt Romney was going to beat Barack Obama. You know, and that, and frankly, like I think a lot of Republicans feel like the binders full of women stuff and the 47 percent thing that we talked about Mm -hmm. were like unfair coupling of Romney's fairly mild statements with like the crazies below. But, you know, I'd say like mm-hmm. the crazies are there. Like, that's your problem. But, you know, I think like mm-hmm. the Biden's full of women thing, people, people, I, I know a lot of Republicans who feel like Romney got railroaded in a sense mm-hmm. during that mm-hmm. election. I don't think he was going to beat Obama regardless. I think part of what's missing in this report is like, hey, we faced a like, you know, like I said, a generationally talented opponent. You know, what can you do? So, you know, I don't know. I guess the question is kind of like what? What does it take for a party to really learn some lessons without mm. sort of reckoning with the, what it actually is, you know, at a moment? You know, can you just mm. learn lessons about rhetoric or do you have to really, really rework things from the ground up? Well, and how much power do party leaders have in actually doing that? It does seem like the only signal that matters in all of the noise is are people winning? Um, And then the question with these autopsies is then what do you do? And ultimately, party leaders like this don't necessarily have a ton of control over what the party does. Yes. Although that's actually really good that you bring that up because I because I think, you know, to get specific about some of the recommendations in here, there were these policy and rhetoric recommendations. One very specific recommendation was about shortening the primary process, removing the number of debates. And I remember Mm -hmm. going into 2016 when there was just debate after debate after oh debate God, in the yeah, primaries yeah. with like 30 people on stage and Trump just kept hanging around and hanging <laughs> yeah. around and breaking through and taking yeah. out there. I remember people actually saying like, this was not supposed to happen. There was a report four mm. years ago that said party leaders should put their, you know, put their hands on the tiller and prevent this from happening. And it's true. Mm. And like, you know, you want to talk about very specific structural things that could have changed that I don't know if they would have prevented Trump. Um, you know, that's that's what party leaders can do to your point, Nikki. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Anything else you want to add about this? I wonder if Reince Priebus is just going to kind of like wander into uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell's office and whoo, blow the dust off of this thing and be like, hey, by the way. <laughs> Sets it down gently on the desk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or he's, he's actually piecing it together from the paper shredder that Trump threw. That's in. right. After <laughs> <laughs> Trump tried to flush it down the toilet. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, we'll post a link to the actual report if folks want to go read it. It's a fascinating uh, historical document. Only 10 years old, by the way. Only 10 years old. Mm. So much has changed. But uh, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you as always. My pleasure. Our message was weak. Our ground game was insufficient. We weren't inclusive. We want to build our party. And we want to do it with bold strokes to show that we're up to the challenge. And we're done with business as usual. Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So 
Do you have a moment in your life that changed you fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly slash lastdaystories, B-I-T dot L-Y slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you. Hey, friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.